Well, good morning. As I've uh, welcomed you this morning, welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm so thankful that you have joined us this morning. It's always good when we gather as God's people, is it not? We glorify God when we gather. Well, I believe, as I prayed earlier, that our gathering as a church is a small foretaste of when we will worship the Lord forever without, without ceasing. As such, I believe there is a transcendent nature of, of the gathering. The Apostle Paul points to this reality in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together. And listen to this is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We don't see that happening. It's not a, a building that's being built that we can see, the construction that we can see, but no less, there's no less the reality that, that all, the saints of the Lord are being built together into this holy uh, dwelling place, this holy temple, in whom we are... The, the, God, the dwelling of God in the Spirit. The body of Christ re- reflects this truth as we gather on Sunday and as we gather throughout the week. Now, I just mentioned that we will worship the Lord without ceasing. I, I, I don't think I don't think that we will participate in this unending worship service, but that that God will dwell with us as we worship Him. John says this very thing in Revelation 21. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. I believe the gathering of God's people, like I said earlier, is a small foretaste of that eternal reality, that God will dwell among us as we dwell with him and dwell with one another. The relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden with their Maker will be fully restored. Truth should encourage your heart. I know it does my heart. We're here to worship our Lord who dwells with us and within us. As we gather, we're experiencing a spiritual reality that will find its full expression when God has fully accomplished redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await the coming day when He will. I hope you, I hope you, I hope you will are with me with this. And you know, I've been through some trials in my own life, as you know, with my uh, surgery, and and this is real for me. This is real. Revelation twenty one four. He will wipe away every tear from my eyes, from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things are passed away. That's reality. That's reality. It's reality that that's the future that we have if we are in Christ. But until that day, as God's people, we place our hope in the Lord Jesus, who will one day wipe away our tears. It's in Him that we find rest for our weary soul. In that day, in that coming day, in that uh, reality, we will dwell in God's perfect creation and we'll have perfect harmony with God and with His creation and we'll enjoy a perfect relationship with the Creator. In the meantime, 
In the meantime, we look back at Genesis chapter 1, and we see the glory of God who created the world that we inhabit, and we look forward to Revelation 21 and 22 as we see God bring all these things to fruition. And we stand with David, and we say at Psalm 19:1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, the glory of our Creator, the One who created us, and their expanse, the heavens, the heavens and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. See, we can see, even though it's even though it's flawed, it's fallen is probably a better way to say it. Creation still reflects the glory of the one who created. As we return to our current series in Genesis chapter one through three, you may be asking, why would you take the time to teach Genesis one through three? What does it really matter to me today? I tell you, here's what I have my answer to you. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. I want you to see that clearly, that that we can that we can see in creation that it points back to him and his work. As one man puts it, everywhere I look, everything I feel, hear, smell, taste, transmits the beauty of God through the beauty of creation. He is the beauty behind all beauty. So I ask you, why wouldn't we take the time? Why wouldn't we take the time to declare the glory of God as revealed in His Word starting in Genesis chapter 1? Now you may ask further, what do these things have to do with me? After all, I'm trying to be a mom or a dad. I'm, I'm trying to work to earn a living for my family. I'm struggling with health problems. Why, why does this matter to me? Why, why Genesis 1? What is, how do I apply Genesis 1 to my life? Well, today, beloved, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. It's fallen. And there's going to be tears. There is pain. There is suffering. There is difficulty. There, this, this world grows thorns and thistles. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged that God can and He will wipe every tear. He can, He created this world, and He can and He will redeem it. We can have this confidence because we know that He made this world. We, we know that He spoke this world into existence by the word of His power, and if that's true, then we can trust that He will make all things new. He will heal every disease. He will mend our brokenness. And He will restore our relationships. Oh, those fallen relationships that we have. In Christ, those are fully mended. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and dive into Genesis chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. We pray that You would be with me as, as I preach. Be with us as we hear, or may your word be illuminated this morning, not by the cleverness of the preacher, but through your Spirit, through your Holy Spirit that dwells in your people. May we be built up this morning in love. In Jesus' name, amen. A user posted the following question on a website called Quora. 
Would the earth be better off without us humans ever existing? One user gave the following answer. Better, he says, better is not a meaningful word if you, have, if you don't have clear standards. What is the purpose of the earth? Is it to host life, intelligence, civilization, morality, biodiversity, undisturbed geological strata? Without a sentient conception of what's good and bad, there is no good and bad. The earth would just keep hurtling through space, spinning around, not caring about all the little creatures crawling around and burrowing and eating each other on its surface. If you're asking whether there would be a more variety of species on the earth's surface, fewer extinctions, then the answer would be an unequivocal yes. If you're asking whether there would be more organism, more living organisms, then humans barely make a difference. The vast majority of living organisms are viruses and, and bacteria in the sea, which barely notice that we're here. The world would definitely be better for wolves. They'll probably work for deer. And clearly better for dodo birds and passenger pigeons. So really the question is, whose well-being are we concerned with here? End quote. Now this user's question is, it's a, critical, it's a critical question, is it not? Are we, uh, as we think about our environment, are we concerned for the deer, the plant life, the dodo birds, and the passenger pigeons, or are we concerned about human life? Another user wrote the following answer. Says that it, it makes absolutely no difference. Here's why. Our sun is a very ordinary and typical star. At about a million miles in diameter, it seems huge to us, but to the universe, it is less than a speck of dust. I want to give you a sense of scale. Have you ever been to the beach and walked along the sand, or perhaps you have sat down and let some sand fall between your fingers? Maybe you've even looked closely at a few grains of sand in the palm of your hand? Well, there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches and deserts of the entire Earth. It's important that you reread that a few times until it sinks in. Now, let me stop there. Now, there's much here, obviously, that we can affirm. We should consider the, the size of the universe. But as we do, we, we must, as Christians, also consider and be in honor of the battle created at all. This user continues. Again, this is on the website for us. I just did a search. Just a see what was being said, I think. As we, he says, as we currently understand it, the speed limit of the universe is the speed of light, about 300,000 meters per second. At that speed, the closest star to our sun is about four years of travel time away. In other words, to get from one grain of sand on that beach to the very next grain takes no less than four years. Now imagine how long it would take to travel the entire length of the beach, taking four years from each grain of sand to the next. Of course, on the beach, the grains of sand are packed right next to each other, but in the universe, they are far apart, and that's the point. The universe is absolutely huge, so big that it takes a lot of mental horsepower to even begin thinking about it. Now, again, we can affirm much of what this man says. The, the universe is absolutely massive, huge. Not even, we can't even fathom how big it is. Much, much bigger than we can even think through. But then this man goes off the rails. 
He says this, Compared to the universe, we are so incredibly tiny. I agree with that. I agree with that. But then he says, unimportant, impotent, that our existence or lack of existence is utterly irrelevant. End quote. Now, I agree, again, that we are incredibly tiny compared to the universe. We are even tinier, though, compared to the God who made the universe. But that's where this man gets it completely wrong, does he not? The Bible gives a completely different view of man and his creator. In Genesis chapter 1, Moses describes a God who is transcendent. He's above all things. He's bigger. He created all these things. He created every grain of sand. He created every star in the sky. He is so high and so lofty that Moses describes the creation of the sun and moon without even bothering the name. And he describes the creation of the, of the stars as a mere accident. As a, as a mere accident. Oh, and God created those two. And as we saw last Sunday in Genesis chapter 1, Moses used the name for God, Elohim, over and over and over. And he, he continually uses it. In fact, he uses the name more than 30 times from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. This is an important point because Elohim emphasizes God's majesty as the Creator. This name, or better said, title, establishes God's absolute authority over everything. In the words of Admiral Chow, out of supernatural, supernatural, out of supernatural beings, there is one who transcends everything, natural or supernatural. He is in a category altogether by himself. He is the ultimate, definite, singular, exclusive, supernatural being. He is singular, unique, and incomparable. There is none like him. Truly, God is supreme over every location and everything that fills every location in his creation. All those stars, you know, that big sun that we see in the sky, he's sovereign over that. He, the reason why we can we spin around the, the, the sun, the reason why with everything works the way it does is because God is in control and is supreme over them. And the title Elohim establishes that truth. Establishes that truth. In chapter one, he uses that title. Moses uses that title over and over without even without using pronouns. I mean, you see it over and over and over as you read through the, the scripture. You see it in your English Bible. You see that God did this, God did this, God did this. In the Hebrew, you see Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Again, his use of this language depicts the transcendence of the God of creation. And that's Moses' point. The Torah user, I quoted, sees creation as being so immense that we are reduced to nothing, that, that we are as so impotent and unimportant. Certainly, this is a popular, popular view among intellectual elites, is it not? Yet in Genesis chapter 1, Moses gives a picture of God that shows he is much greater than his creation. We can see the immensity and the complexity of the universe as we look around, but just imagine a God who created all of them, and that's the God of Genesis chapter 1. Now, 
I set that up because I want you to see something. Now, before we move to Genesis chapter 2, we'll see this in a moment. I'm just setting you up. Before we move to Genesis chapter 2, I want to bring you up to date on this series. We titled the series, The Battle from the Beginning. We started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. This is Moses' statement of fact or truth that God created. God created everything out of nothing. Us, In these first three verses, we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit in perfect harmony as they create, that created the heavens and the earth. And we saw that God created by forming and filling His world by His power. In verse 1, He gives the title of the chapter, while in verse 2, He gives the chapter structure. Now, he says, the earth was formless and void. So in the first three days, God gave His, cre- his creation form. In other words, He formed His world and He made it habitable. But at the end of those three days, there was nothing to fill it. So in verses three, uh, 4 through 6, God, uh, in days 4 through 6, sorry, God filled His creation. So on day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars. As I said last week, we noticed that Moses didn't even, as I said earlier, Moses didn't even bother to name the sun and moon. And he, he called them the greater light and the lesser light. I would argue this is because the Egyptians are, are worshipped them. So Moses wanted God's people to know that God is so immense that he doesn't even have to bother to name them. And of all the stars in the heaven uh, that we can't even number, uh, Moses again says simply that, they, that God made them as well. Now, in days five and six, God created the wonderful creatures to created wonderful creatures to fill His creation. On day five, He made the birds and the fish and the great sea monsters. On day six, He created the insects and the beasts of the field. He also created humans. He created uh, people, male and, and female. Then we saw that God created by founding the delegation of the power. That's verses, one, uh, verses 26 to 31. He created man in his image and likeness to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He made man to be ruler over his creation. God himself is the ultimate king over all that he created. He is its rightful ruler, but he chose to execute that rule through mankind. He would fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So he wanted the earth to be filled with man, to rule over the world. In chapter 1, then God, or Moses gives us a glimpse of God's perfect world and how he created it. He, he made everything to live in harmony. Uh, creation lived in harmony with man, and man with God's creation. He tasked man to care for the earth, and he designed the earth to flourish under man's care. You know, it's interesting. As those who know the truth, we should be we should be leaders in caring for the earth. Be leaders in that. But we should know that the earth is for us, not the other way around. We should have the right perspective. The the, the modern environmentalist puts the earth first, but we should see people as more important. They see resources as limited, but we do as well in a fallen world, but we know that it wasn't designed to be that way. The earth was designed to flourish. It was designed to be, there to be plenty. We know as Christians, we know as those who believe in the Word, we know that it's man's sin and lack of proper stewardship that leads to that scarcity. 
Now I want you to notice verse 28. God blessed them. He blessed them. The idea of blessing is incredibly important. The, this blessing, the blessing gives us a picture of God allowing His creatures to enjoy His supernatural uh, blessing, the abundance of everything that He created. It has been said that that supernatural experience of that which is supernaturally ordained to lead you back to the definitive supernatural being. The point is, is that, that God has blessed His people and, and the, the intent was for that supernatural experience or blessing uh, to, to be, uh, lead us back to the one who created it all and so that we might worship Him. Now, I can't I can't emphasize enough the goodness and completeness of God's creation at the end of day six. You look at Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good. And there was the evening, and there was morning the sixth day. God's creation was not just good; it was very good. Now we'll come back to this when we start looking at today's materials. Last week we we finished with day seven. God created by framing the the pattern of His power. In Genesis 2.1, after God had created or finished every location and filled those locations, He created uh, every creature to re- reflect His glory. And in, in the, it, so He said he, he rested. He was completed. And therefore, he, in the seventh day, verse 2, uh, by the seventh day, God completed His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. The idea of rest is that God ceased from work and to enjoy His work. Creation had been finalized. It was good. It was made for His glory. Now God will enjoy all that He's made. Notice in verse 3, again, God blessed the Son of Day and sanctified it. The word sanctified means that He made it holy. In other words, He set it aside. He designated the seventh day for a purpose. He wanted His world to experience His blessing fully. He wanted mankind to rule the world, to fill it, and and subdue it. But these things would have the full blessing of the Creator. They were very good things, and God's very good creation, according to Genesis 1.31. Now, as we pointed out last week, in the first six days, Moses used, used the formula. There was evening and there was morning. Each day, each day had a distinct beginning and ending. Each day stood on its own. And notice the seventh day, Moses doesn't use that familiar formula. And I would argue that he designed the seventh day to be perpetual. Said another way, he designed the seventh day to last forever. He wanted us to, he designed the world to be at rest in the seventh day, which he designed to last forever. Said another way, the purpose of creation was to be set apart to enjoy God forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism picks up on this idea when it says, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In God's very good creation, man was designed to enjoy God forever. Today, we will see that the creation was designed to respond to man and, and as he ruled and subdued it. But unfortunately, as we know, this is not the world we experience today. Because of man's sin, we live in a world that battles against us, that produces thorns and thistles, that is full of violence and, and bloodshed, a world that is in turmoil, not rest. 
we need to know and then understand that God has a, an agenda to return His world back to rest, back to a place where man can fully enjoy creation and creation rightly responds to man. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you think Paul thinks creation is important? One day God will return all of creation to a place where we can fully enjoy God and His blessings. Now today we'll pick up in Genesis 2.5 where we will, where Moses will begin to describe man's creation. Now before we do, I want to remind you of the loftiness of God as described in Genesis 1. He is full of glory. Considering the glory of God that created our world, why would he have then a question that has to come to our mind? Why would he have regard for man? Just like that user said on quote, we are so insignificant, so unimportant, quote-unquote, why would God ever regard us? Thomas asked the same question in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? You see, creation points to something even greater. A great God who transcends us all. Yet, if God is so lofty and so transcendent, why would he ever have regard for you and I? Why would he ever have regard for you and I? And Moses begins to answer that very question in Genesis chapter 2. Now, we're going to take the next couple of weeks to work through this chapter. And Moses, in this chapter, Moses focuses on the creation of man and woman in day 6. In this chapter, he shows that the Elohim, that Elohim of Genesis chapter 1, is a relational God. Moses does this, and does so by showing his readers, first, man's importance, Second, man's creation. Third, man's dwelling place. Fourth, man's work and responsibility. Fifth, man's loneliness. Sixth, man's helpmate. And seventh, man's life before the fall. Now, as we dive into our outline, I want you to understand the structure and purpose of Genesis chapter 2. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we've seen it uh, several times, we've talked about it, that it was a very good creation. He, he declared it was very good. This has the idea of completion. God's creation didn't lack anything that made it good. And we also saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that he made them, he created man, and he created them male and female. Now I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, if you're there, says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. Verse 22, if you look at verse 22, it says, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to be with me and brought her to the man. Now we find in these verses, not only is it not good which in verse 31, chapter 1, verse 31, he said it was very good. But it's not good now. And in these verses, we also find the man was alone. The woman, the female, was missing from God's creation. 
Therefore, I would argue that Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 25 had to occur before Genesis 131. So it follows that that, that chapter 2, in chapter 2, Moses is focusing on the creation of the man and the woman in day 6. Now, having said that, some folks may protest, well, and you hear this a lot, well, there's a lot going on in day 6. Well, obviously that's true. Let's go through it. Now, day 6, God creates the land animals. He creates the insects. He creates the man. He has the man name the animals. He causes the man to go into a deep sleep. Then he creates the woman. Then he presents her to the man, the first wedding. That's a lot of stuff going on in day six. It's a lot of stuff. But we shouldn't overlook that God is supernatural, number one. Let us not forget that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And as they pointed out in his sermon on, on uh, the second uh, sermon in the series, uh, he didn't have to take six days. He just did it because that's what he wanted. He wanted to set the pattern of our world. But he didn't have to. He could have just said, you know, there it is. Could have. There's no doubt that he instantaneously, because he created the world so easily, he instantaneously created the, the animals and the insects. And, and we know that he didn't spend a whole lot of time creating man. And as far as the animals, he just brought the different kinds, not all the varieties we see today, so there wouldn't be as many as we think. Oh, by the way, God made man to be complete. He had no physical defects like you and I, and we're kind of broken down, and, you know, I got heart problems, and some of you, I, I don't know, but <coughs> I'm funny every once in a while. But Adam didn't have any physical defects. He, he would have been able to beat Michael Jordan, hands down. Uh, whatever, whoever the best football player or soccer player, uh, Adam would have, uh, would have schooled him, no doubt. So, naming all the animals wasn't a big task for, for a guy like that. Then he created Eve and presented her to Adam. Uh, but, but here's the thing. I think God could handle all those basic tasks. I really do. So with that, let's, be, let's dive deeper into Genesis chapter 2 of day 6. We'll go through the first three, as I said, first three points today, and then we'll go through the second the four points, I think it is, next week. In Genesis chapter 4, there's two verses 4 through 6. First, Moses shows us man's importance. Now, let's quickly set the context. I know there's a lot of setup here. I, 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 there's only one way to do this, I think, but there's a lot of setup, but we'll hopefully get to the meat here. Now, so let's, let's quickly set the context of Genesis chapter 2. God, Elohim, created the world in Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives us a picture of God's authority, sovereignty, and power. We see everything in this universe that will bring Him glory, and He designed everything in the universe to point back to Him and give Him that glory. And He also designed His world to be at rest. Now look at Genesis 2, 4. Says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, as we've seen, this is, and we talked about last week, this is the first of several Toledos <coughs> that form the structure of, of Genesis. This particular one tells the reader that Moses will give the history of the heavens and earth prior to the flood. Now, this account runs from 2.4 to 4.26. And Genesis 5.1, 1, 
And Moses starts the genealogy of Adam, and that genealogy carries us all the way to, uh, really, the, the New Testament Gospels. And we see, because Luke and Matthew pick up on those genealogies in their, in their Gospels. Now, notice, Moses tells us what he's about to describe. He says, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now, as I said, I would argue that Genesis 2 gives us a detailed account of day 6. Genesis 3 then gives us details of the fall, which happened at some point after God finished creation. And Genesis 4 gives us the details of the post-fall, pre-flood world. Now, Moses shows how God, here in chapter 2, Moses shows how God will relate to his, to his creation. Chapter 2 gives us a picture of how God will relate to his world and, to, and will relate to his vice-regent man. Now, amazingly, in chapter 2, we found, find that God, Elohim, who created this world, is not aloof. He intends to have a relationship with his creation. More specifically, he intends to have a relationship with man. Said another way, the Word of God reveals that the transcendent God of chapter 1 will deal with this world personally. Now, before we get into the text, I want to show you something that I believe reinforces this picture. This is incredibly important. So if, you're not, if, I've, if I've lost you... Come back now, because this is important. Now, before we get in, um, well, so so here's the here's where, what I want you to see. We have shown that Moses uses the name Elohim to describe God in His authority and power and sovereignty and transcendent. He uses transcendent, and he uses that name over and over in the first chapter. But he makes a profound change in chapter two. Look at. Genesis 2.5. Notice that he says, for the Lord God. For the Lord God. Now, literally, he says, Yahweh Elohim. Now, we know later that Yahweh is God's covenant name. It is the name that God wanted Moses to use as he addressed Israel. And if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, for the most part, that's the name that, that is used for God. That is the vast majority. Yahweh is the name for God. And it, it's, his, it's His covenant name. In Exodus 3, God appeared to Moses in the, in the burning bush, and Moses asked God who to say had sent him to the people of Israel. In Exodus, Exodus 3.14, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent to you, has sent me to you. Now it goes on in 15, verse 15. This is Exodus 3, 15. It says, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. So what we have here is a is that Yahweh is the, the God of that, that has, a, has a relationship. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. And that's the one who has sent Moses. In other words, God, God commanded Moses to use his covenant name as he addressed the people. Now, 
liberal theologians or, or commentators try to say that, you know, in chapter 1, he uses Elohim, and chapter 2, he uses Yahweh Elohim, and then later he uses Yahweh. They try to say that that's different authors using different names. That's not, I don't, that's absolutely not true. The truth is much, much, much more profound. In Genesis chapter 2, I, are, I would argue, and I believe, that Moses uses both names, Yahweh Elohim, to show that Elohim, the Elohim of creation, is the same God who took them out of Israel. He is the covenant God. The God of the covenant, said another way. He is the covenant-keeping God, said another way. He is the one that Moses wrote of in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, uh, God, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You see, if, if Moses had looked at that Elohim, if Moses had looked at the God of creation, we wouldn't be able to approach him. Yet, God is Yahweh. Elohim is Yahweh. Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim. That's why I believe that Moses uses this designation in chapter 2. Because he's talking about the God who created man. The covenant-keeping God, the God of relationship. He wants, he wants the Israelites, remember he's writing this as they are getting ready to go in the land, all the way to Deuteronomy. He wants them to know that Yahweh and Elohim are the same God. And while Elohim emphasizes God's transcendent nature, Yahweh emphasizes His relationship. Now look at verses 5 and 6 in chapter 2. Now I'll be using the Legacy Standard Bible. I've I provided both, and if you have the handout, I provided both in NASB and, and the Legacy Standard in your notes. But I found that the Legacy Standard uh, is, just does a, a really good job of, of helping understand this section. In the Legacy Standard, verse 5, it says, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, God brought forth vegetation in day three. We saw that. So Moses probably, I, would, I think he, was, he is describing the state of the world prior to day three. And he, and he gives the reason for this condition. So there was no shrub of the field in, yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had, had yet grown. For Yahweh God, the reason is Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Moses may have also been describing, I, I, this, is a, this is a kind of a conjecture on my part, but Moses may have also been describing the earth prior to being populated by man. I say this because later in this chapter he describes the Garden of Eden. Now we have to understand that the garden was in one specific location. It didn't cover, the Garden of Eden didn't cover the whole earth, it was in one specific location, so there's a possibility that the rest of the earth may have been in some sort of holding pattern waiting on man and the animals to fully inhabit it. That's conjecture on my part. But look back 
at verse 5, I think the bigger issue is shown here. There, is, there was no man to cultivate the ground. In other words, creation was waiting on man. How upside down have we turned things in our world? Uh, God's creation understands man's importance, yet so many of us don't recognize that truth. It's, it's upside down. Creation, as we saw in, in Romans 8, creation groans and, and longs for man to be restored to a right relationship with his creator. It's funny, we get a glimpse of this when we work in our yard, do we not? Some of you may remember Ray Manager. He was actually my neighbor in, in California. He, he kept an incredibly beautiful yard. I was ashamed of mine. I, I, I still am. Well, I don't have a yard right now, but, but you know the point. But he kept this beautiful yard. He had a green thumb. Said another way, God's creation responded to him. Over the past few years, Andy and I have started doing more with houseplants. But we, I, I killed them. She killed them. Well, I shouldn't say that. She's out of hand, so she didn't, she didn't hear that. But, but we've noticed that the more we pay attention to them, they, if we pay attention and we actually try to help them, they actually respond pretty well. And, and although we do kill them. You know, in any case, these examples, as feeble as they may be, give a dim picture of how God created His world to respond to man. He created it to respond to man. If, if you just leave those plants sitting in the house and you never do anything with them, they don't respond, do they? They will. They respond. They die. Look at Genesis two six. But a, a, a steam would rise from the earth and, the, and water the whole surface of the ground. Now, I think this is, again, simply a description of the world prior to the flood and possibly prior to the man and, and the animals fully filling the earth. Now, we've seen in these verses man's importance. Now Moses describes man's creation. Look at verse 7. Man's creation. The, then the Lord God... Formed, the man of dust, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Uh, uh, the, here, Moses describes the way God created man. Notice he formed him of dust. It's, an, it's interesting that science has shown that we're made of the same basic material as our environment. The, the human body is made up mostly of oxygen and carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and calcium and phosphorus, but that God basically revealed this 3,500 years ago. We're basically made up of the same stuff that we're, that's around us. He formed man of dust. And also notice he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, th- this is the ultimate cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Literally, the man had no life. Man was a lifeless body. He was literally a pile of dirt. Then God supernaturally breathed life into him. This is a, Moses is portraying a deep intimacy here. It, it depicts God's love for man. Man is literally made from dirt. Man is literally, I mean, if you think about it, unimportant. But God's breath shows how much value he places in man. His breath, God's breath literally gave the man life. This truth differentiates as much as I love my dogs, as much as I love them, this truth differentiates us from, a, from animals. We don't 
see the same level of intimacy in their creation. Only man was created in this way. And you may ask, well, how do I apply this truth to my life? That's been, you know, it's interesting. With preaching, you know, there's, a, there's this big, you know, basically teaching versus application, and, and, you know, you should get more application, and you're too teachy, or you're that. <clears throat> the question then becomes, how do I apply this truth to my life? Well, beloved, you were made in the image of God. Your life literally comes from the breath of God. Now, he didn't breathe into your nostrils the way he did with Adam, but that's, that is the, I mean, he, you came from Adam, and, and therefore your life, uh, you are made in the image of God, and, and your life literally comes from the breath of God. Now, I, in this culture, you don't have to tell people how important they are. I mean, people get that all the time, right? They, people want, you got to love yourself, right? Well, that's pop psychology and, yeah. But there is a sense, biblically, there is a sense of, of how important God made man. And those people who love themselves, they don't understand. They don't understand the true importance of man in God's eyes. cares for us. He cares for us, for, his, for your children. I had a conversation with a man concerning the overturning of Roe v. Wade. For him, that was a big event. And I truly, I agree with him. I love this man's heart to see the, that great evil thwarted. It, it was an amazing moment. Some of you may, may just, I mean, some of you may just really be thankful. I mean, hopefully all thankful for it. It was an incredible victory. As Christians, we should celebrate this victory. You, you may recall that I talked about it for a few moments, a few minutes uh, prior to a sermon, just before it happened, before I, before I went to the hospital. Uh, but we didn't dwell on it. That's, that's my point. We didn't dwell on it. We just we talked about it briefly, and then, and you know, I gave some insights, and that, that was what, what we did. And you may, so you may ask, why not? This man actually asked, why not? Why, why didn't you dwell on it? We didn't dwell on it because we believe it's a much greater task to help you understand the truth of Scripture. Here is the truth of Scripture. All life comes from God. All life is a gift from God. Each and every baby comes from God. If life comes from God, then each and every baby is precious and deserves our protection from conception. That's the truth. So I don't, I mean, as much as I celebrate Roe v. Wade being overturned, and I'm thankful that it's overturned, the truth is I celebrate this truth more, much, much more because it doesn't matter whether Roe v. Wade is, a, is in effect or whether it's been overturned. It doesn't matter. Now, again, I'm thankful that the Supreme Court overturned Roe. I, it, it was an evil, evil judgment. But I've been given a far more critical task of teaching you from Scripture why human life is precious to God and should be precious to us. Then you go out and you make you fight those fights, and I join you when I can. It's a far more critical task to preach so that we can have the hope of the gospel and can preach 
the gospel to those babies as they grow up. We haven't accomplished anything if we if we save them and we don't see them hear the gospel. Please celebrate that Roe has been overturned, but the job is not finished. We don't find our hope in that event, do we not? Where do we find our hope? We find our hope in the good news of the Lord Jesus. We find our hope in the Word of God. Well, we've seen man's importance and man's creation. Now let's look briefly at man's dwelling place. Look at your text in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. Now I told you that this garden was in a specific location. It was called Eden. Uh, the text says that, that God placed the man there, and we have to we have to recognize then the the magnificent uh, magnificence of this place. It, uh, we can kind of skate over this. Now you may think of a modern day garden. For sure, there have been fabulous gardens throughout the world. Angie and I visited the Biltmore Estate some time back, and they have a an incredible garden there, and, and I'm sure you guys have seen some of those, uh, the, but the most amazing gardens in the world pale, pale in comparison, and they're not even comparable to the Garden of Eden that God planted for the man. So, I mean, unlike anything we've ever seen since, uh, we, if, in anything that we'll ever see until the new heavens and the new earth, uh, we, now we don't know the exact location of the garden, but we know that Moses says it was toward the east. Now, this is probably in relation to Moses when he wrote. Therefore, it could have been located uh, somewhere in the area of Babylon. We just don't know because the earth has completely changed after the flood. We, but there you go. In Genesis 2.9, he says, Moses says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So in this beautiful place, God caused trees to grow, and these trees were pleasing, and and they yielded their fruit to eat. Again, God made this place to be perfect for man. Now look back at your text in in 2.9. It says, The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this, uh, again, we see these beautiful trees. But let's set the scene here. You see, Moses is describing a lush garden that's beyond all that our minds can comprehend. It was a, the perfect place. Man had abundance. He had abundant food. He had a beautiful setting. Uh, and we could argue the most beautiful setting ever to ever exist in this world. There were... Beautiful trees are providing abundant fruit. But there were two special trees in the midst of this garden. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the text doesn't give us any more detail about these trees at this point in the narrative. But we have to remember that these trees existed. God, Moses points that out. It's important. Now look back at your text in Genesis 10, 2, 10 through 14. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. And the, the name of the first is Pishon. The name it flows around the whole land of Havilah, and where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows uh, around the whole land of Cush. 
The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. Uh, the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I want to make a few observations about this text. First, Moses describes this place as having much water. Now, in our in our day, water is a major point of contention, especially out west. I don't know if you're watching uh, the keeping up with the drama unfolding at, uh, at Lake Powell and Mead on the Colorado River. Uh, these two lakes supply much of the water to Las Vegas and Southern California. It would be an absolute disaster if these lakes were unable to supply the water and, and electricity to, to those areas. Now, for the past few years, there have been uh, droughts on the Colorado River Basin. And this has led both Powell and Mead to dry up and, and become dangerously low. On, on one hand, they're, they're working as designed. I mean, they, they've drawn them down, and, and they've been able to use these waters through, the water through the drought years. But on the other hand, they need a period of rain and snow to sustain life in these areas. Here's the point. Water skips in this world. And without water, Vegas and, and Southern California couldn't survive. Neither could we here. But that was no such problem for Eden. They had plenty of water. They also had, you might say, stupendous wealth. They had gold and bedellium. And God truly designed Eden to be the capital of his world. Now we look forward to the new Jerusalem, right? And that same thing will happen. But he placed man there to rule. He gave it plenty of food and water and wealth. This was an incredible place, far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. I, I think there's another reason that, that Moses gives us this description. He wanted us to know that Eden was, in fact, a real place. It was an actual place with actual people. Adam and Eve, it truly existed. Nothing in our current world even approaches the beauty of Eden. Uh, most people doubt that a, such a place would ever exist. And yet Moses says it's there. And he describes it. He wants us to know it's very real. Now we'll pick up there next week. Beloved, Genesis 1 describes the, the creation of the world. It shows us that God, Elohim, created all that we can, all that we can see and everything that we can't see. Just consider the heavens and then consider the God who spoke them into existence. If you think about it, you will come to the conclusion that you can't, you can't truly fathom God's creation. Even with our spaceships and our telescopes, we've only begun to see what's out there. Microscopes give us some idea of the internal structure of this world, but even there, we can't fully understand it. We can't have telescopes that, that give us enough detail going out or microscopes that give us enough detail going in. We have no clue all that, is, all that, all that exists in this world. Now, if we can't comprehend God's creation, how can we ever comprehend God? Yet, God has revealed Himself to us. From the beginning, He chose to have a relationship with man. Genesis 2 shows that He has revealed Himself in His Word. He has shown us His desire to not just be Elohim, transcendent, sovereign, lofty, above his creation. In chapter 2, he reveals himself to be Yahweh, Elohim. 
He is the God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, forgives our iniquity, transgression, and sin. Beloved, Yahweh Elohim has revealed Himself in His Son. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him came, nothing came into being. But He says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, a glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. Just think about that. Think about that. The God who created this world, John says, is full of grace and truth. And John 17, Jesus prayed to His Father, this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom You have sent, again, the God of creation. The God of creation has sent His Son so that we may know Him. The only true God. Beloved, if there be anybody here today who don't, don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you'll come to Him today. Because the same One who created this world, the same One who desires a relationship with man and has provided the way he, Jesus, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He will judge this world, as we saw in Isaiah 13. He's the same judge. And Jesus' word, words from John 17, eternal life is knowing Him. He has revealed the Father. He has accomplished redemption through His death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. And now He's returned to the Father, glorified. It is my prayer that you know Him. And that you join all of creation in glorifying Him. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart in the preaching of this sermon, I just ask that you come see me. Uh, Don't let the day go by. Don't let the day go by without turning to the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this early afternoon. Praise You that we could preach Your Word, hear Your Word preached, that Lord, You, I pray, would be glorified even today through our worship and song and prayer and the preaching of Your Word. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.